The very first thing that I want to do as we get started this morning is to thank each and every one of you uh, who either prayed for or participated in or even wanted to participate in yesterday's door knocking. We saw what I believe some very good results. We had 26 members of the congregation that were able and, and free to go. We had 85 conversations, uh, 85 uh, places that folks were home that we got to talk to in one form or another. Passed out 131 Bible bookmarks and had four requests for in-home Bible studies. So I think that is awesome and again, I, uh, I want to thank everybody for that. And I want to tell you two things in regards to that. Number one, please keep praying that the seeds that were spread will bring forth fruit. Just because that particular door knocking day is past, please don't neglect it in your prayers. There's a lot of fruit, hopefully, that will come from that, and, and God needs to hear from us on that. Number two, we have not yet begun to door knock, just so you all know. Uh, I want you to keep in mind that even though yesterday was the organized day, that from now on, if you have a Sunday afternoon when it's not 112 in the shade, if you have a Sunday afternoon or you have some evening, you say, you know what, I, I'd like to take a little walk and uh, I could use, could use a good walk. Why don't I go get 10 or 12 names from Doug of doors that uh, people weren't home, uh, that sort of thing. And I'll knock those doors and we'll get those crossed off because we have a number that we're not home on a nice Saturday morning. And so let me know and I'll get you a list, get all that organized and the people's door who was not knocked, uh, we're gonna continue to do this individually. Uh, grab a group of teenagers, something, let's, let's continue to, to do that. So, appreciate that. As we begin this morning, I'm going to uh, ask you to be mindful throughout both this morning's and tonight's lesson of the words of Psalm 103, verses 10 through 14, which read as follows. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Please be turning in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 12 as we begin. Matthew chapter 12. After quoting and illustrating a messianic prophecy from Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6 in Matthew 12 and verse 7 where Jesus said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus goes on to show just how merciful he truly is. Jesus goes on from this point to show how he is the perfect embodiment and fulfillment of another messianic prophecy, this time from the book of Isaiah. We would begin reading Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue. 
And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That they might accuse him. Then he said to them, What man is there among you who has one sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. In Mark's account of this same event, Mark would let us know in chapter 3 and verse 5 the following. It says, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and restored it. Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. Jesus was angry, grieved at them for the hardness of their hearts. We see that as we continue on in Matthew 12 and verse 14 and following where it says, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. They weren't interested in what the law said. They were interested in their own version of it. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. Verse 15. And great multitudes followed him. Notice this. And he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet. He healed them all. Don't lose sight of that. All of them. That Isaiah might be fulfilled, which says, verse 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Obviously, this was Isaiah prophesying about Jesus, the Messiah, and who he would be. It says in verse 19, He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will trust. A bruised reed he will not break. Can't help but think when I used to do a lot of canoeing up in Maine, some of those little little coves that you get into, they'd have this, this grass that would grow up out of the water there, and it was kind of shallow, and, and some of those reeds were not real strong. They were very supple, and, and the idea is that if you have one that's broken, I mean, it, it is right there ready to just come apart. Jesus wouldn't, he would be so gentle as to not break it off the rest of the way. Talking about how gentle Jesus is and was, especially when it came to people. It also says a smoking flax he will not quench. And the picture there is, is of a candle with a wick. You know, sometimes when you get down to the end of the wax on a candle, a wick will, it, it hasn't got much left to burn, and it's just, it's just kind of, it's right on its last leg, a little bit of ember, it's smoking a whole lot, it, it's on the verge of going out. It said Jesus be so gentle that he won't snuff that out. That's the idea there. Two weeks ago, we did a little two-part sermon mini-series entitled The Narrow-Minded Messiah. And hopefully it was apparent to everybody from those two lessons that God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, 
all have no tolerance for deliberate disobedience, willful false teaching, or anyone or anything that seeks to willfully, directly compromise or contradict the Word of God. Made that pretty clear in that little sermon mini-series. And it doesn't matter from whom such contradictions to the Word of God would come, Deuteronomy 13 and Romans 3 and verse 4. And of course we know that the ultimate original source of, of all such willful disobedience and, and sin and, and, and breaking the commandments of God willfully is Satan. We know that. We know that from the scripture. We know that from John 8, 44 and Matthew 16, 23, which is a text we mentioned more than once. We live in a world of twisted toleration, a world that totally rejects the idea of absolute truth. This is the problem. They reject, that's why we're in the mess we're in, okay? People reject the idea that there is an immovable, immutable, invincible, and eternal black and white standard of right and wrong, and that's why we're in the mess that we are in. That's why so many of the news stories are what they are. But I want us to understand that that black and white standard of right and wrong is what the scripture is. There it is. Period. We have the standard. But as strangers and aliens here, as members of, of his church, we know that if anybody would live with him forever and follow in the footsteps of Jesus, they must teach only what the Bible teaches, speaking where it speaks, being silent where it's silent. And we understand that contradicting or, or compromising or tampering with the word of God is completely unacceptable and intolerable to the narrow-minded Messiah. We understand that. Matthew 4, 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 2, Galatians 2, 4, and 5, we understand that. But here's the thing I want us to get today. Just as intolerable, uncompromising, and unaccepting as the narrow-minded Messiah was of false teaching and deliberate disobedience, he is every inch the exact opposite when it comes to being totally tolerant, perfectly patient, and absolutely accepting of sinners who make mistakes but want to get it right. That's what I want for us to understand. Just as, just as against and, and uncompromising as the narrow-minded Messiah is when it comes to doctrine and the commandments of God, Jesus Christ, the tender-hearted Messiah, is to the other extreme, if you will, totally tolerant and perfectly patient with those sinners who really want to know God but make a lot of mistakes along the way. That's the whole point of this morning's lesson. The narrow-minded Messiah in matters of doctrine is that same extremely tender-hearted Messiah. When it comes to the matter of weak and wayward sinners who really want to know him and follow his word despite, despite their shortcomings. <clears throat> Listen, Jesus loved and loves everybody. 
God so loved the world. Not the good people, not the church members, not just the Jews. Paul makes that clear in Ephesians. God so loved the world. The good, the bad, the ugly, the weak, the sinful, the great, the awesome, the, the nobody, all of it, okay? The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, he says. It did not matter when Jesus was here, Jesus the, the tender-hearted Messiah. It did not matter their race, their religion, their reputation, or their resume. It did not matter. It did not matter their past. It did not matter their gender. It did not matter their social status. It did not matter their skin color. To Jesus Christ, the tender-hearted Messiah, all souls matter. Period. To Jesus Christ, every soul on the planet was to die for, literally. And he literally did. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4? Remember, when I talk about the tender-hearted Messiah, remember that? Here's a woman who's been married five times, living in adultery now. And what did Jesus tell her? He told her that if she simply asked, she could have living water. Living water. Living water that would be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That was hers simply for the asking. That's what Jesus told her. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. Wow, Jesus, did you? Yeah, he meant it, every word of it. Yeah. Why? Because the tender-hearted Messiah loved people no matter where they were. You recall a few chapters later in John chapter 7, we see this same tender-hearted Messiah. And we see that he repeats this same promise for whoever would accept it. Whoever would accept it. Once again, it did not matter who they were, where they had been, or what they had done. They could have all that he had to offer. Look, look what he says in John chapter 7. Turn over there, verses 37 through 39. Look what Jesus says. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It didn't matter who they were. Jesus knew that, that, that people hurt and that they needed him. And he said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It was theirs for the asking. You know, as we move on in John, we get to chapter 8. And we see Jesus, the tender-hearted Messiah. That's the phrase I want you to get today. Jesus was the tender hearted Messiah. We see him reach out to a woman in love and mercy who was caught in a terrible sin. Very active adultery. John 8, 1, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came again to the temple and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. And 
Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in, in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say? We know this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Jesus stooped down, wrote on the ground with his fingers, though he didn't hear him. So when they continued asking him, he raised up and said to them, he who's without sin among you, let him throw a stone at it first. Go ahead, open fire, boys. Oh, by the way, first one fired, first one no sin. Go ahead. Again, he stooped down, wrote on the ground. And those who heard it being convicted by their, see, they come to understand something. They come to understand they had sin too. They went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus got up, he, he saw no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Don't misunderstand. Jesus, the narrow-minded Messiah, did not for one second tell her her sin was okay. Jesus Christ, the narrow-minded Messiah, was not okay with her sin at all. Sin was sin was sin. It was wrong. But here's, here's the key that Jesus, the narrow-minded Messiah, wants for us to know. Even though her sin was wrong, and he told her, go your way and sin no more. That was a commandment of Jesus. That's wrong. Don't live like that. That's wrong. But notice this. Even though she was caught in that sin, the tender-hearted Messiah was not going to allow that sin to interfere with his love for her. Go your way. I'm not condemning you. He condemned her sin, but he didn't condemn her. We hear this so often, love the sinner, hate the sin. What a beautiful balance between the tender-hearted Messiah and the narrow-minded Messiah. Jesus was both. We need to learn that balance, when to be both, to love the sinner and to hate the sin, and not let, not let the sin cloud the love and the mercy that we should have. Yes, we need to be narrow-minded when it comes to doctrine. Wrong is wrong. Wrong's always going to be wrong. But people who do wrong and are broken by the wrong they do need tender hearts of mercy where the doctrine needs to be rigidly upheld. And, and Jesus was that, that perfect combination. Listen, Jesus gave this woman another chance, didn't he? Gave her another chance. Go your way. I'm not condemning you. Go your way and sin no more. Don't do that. But go your way. I'm not condemning you. Listen, he not only gave her a second chance, but aren't you glad that Jesus, that God is the God of the seventh times 70th chances when it comes to your sin and my sin? Not just that, he's not the God of second chances. He is the God of seven times 70th chances when it comes to people. If, if, if we are trying and truly humbling our heart and trying our hardest to follow him despite our weaknesses, he has a tender heart for us. He has mercy for us. He has love for us. For those who fear him, as we read in Psalm 103. And aren't you glad that as a church, as his church, 
Not a church, his church, the church. Aren't you glad that we are taught that we too are to learn how to extend that same tenderheartedness to one another? Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, we know the story well. And in the closing verse there, verse 35, so my heavenly Father will do to each one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. He taught us, Jesus taught us to be narrow-minded, to keep our mind on the straight and narrow, to, to stick with everything God said and never compromise, but just as, as, as locked into that as he was, he was locked into being merciful and patient with people, people who were trying to get it right, despite their many problems and issues. Speaking of Matthew, as I just did, and having covered several examples from the book of John, I want us to turn to just one chapter in Matthew and just look at how tender-hearted and how many tender-hearted examples of Jesus' interaction with people there were in just one, one chapter. Matthew, chapter 8. Just look at the love and mercy tender-hearted Messiah had for those lost in sin, those who had nothing to give in return, and also had no hope without him. And he knew that. And in his tender heart, he knew that so strongly. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Behold, the leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus put out his hand and touched him. We talked about this before, and I've heard Devo's on it. He reached out and touched the leper, the guy that nobody touches, the guy that, that, that had to live in isolation. Jesus, the tender-hearted Messiah, reached out and he didn't have to do that. Jesus could have healed from a distance. Jesus didn't have to touch him. Jesus didn't even have to see him to heal him. But he reached out and he touched the man. I wonder how long it had been since that man had been touched by someone as a leper. And Jesus touched him. And he healed him, saying, I am willing be cleansed. Jesus Christ is willing to clean up anybody who will ask. He didn't say, well, you know, now you. No. Touched him. He healed him. Just like he offered salvation to that woman as well, just like he said to that woman in John 8, go your way and sin no more. Jesus doesn't approve of, of, of their sin, but he has a tender heart toward them all. In verses 5 through 7 of Matthew chapter 8, we read, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, Tough luck for you, buddy. You're not one of my people. Uh, no, no, that's, that's, not, that's not what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Jesus didn't just say, I'll heal him. He said, I'll come. I will come to him. I'll come. I'll follow you. I'll go to your house and I'll heal him. I, 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 will, I will go and I will heal him or I will come and heal him. I, I will come. Well, when you think about that, I want us to remember who this man was that asked, okay? This man was a centurion. He was a Roman, a pagan Gentile, in charge of 100 Roman soldiers. Rome had subjugated Israel the same way that Putin's trying to do to Ukraine. This guy was not, this was a Roman soldier. This was the enemy of the Jews. 
Jesus not only said, I'll heal him, but I'll come heal him. I'll make an extra effort. I'll come heal him. You see, this man's ethnicity, this man's being an enemy of, of, of the Jews, as it were, didn't matter to Jesus. Jesus was willing to go to him Jesus' life reflecting exactly what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48 about going the extra mile and etc. We move on to Matthew chapter 8 and we look at verse 13, how it wound up. Jesus said to the centurion, go your way and as you have believed, so it will be done for you. And we know there's a little exchange there in between and Jesus doesn't have to go um, to the man's house, but Again, Jesus, Jesus healed him. Why? Because he was a good guy? Maybe. Because he deserved it. None of us deserve the goodness God gives us. God gives it to us because he is tender-hearted, not because we're deserving of it. Because he knows how weak and fragile. He pities us as a father pities his children. He, he realizes we are dust. Like I said, don't lose Psalm 103 during these two lessons today. And you know... As we look at verses 16 and 17 of Matthew 8, we continue to see his tender heart. It says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. I want us to, to notice here, when it says, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he healed all who were sick. One of the key words in this little text here is the word all. All. And, and why it's so important that, that we understand that in the context of Jesus' tenderheartedness? Do you suppose it's at least possible that, that from all of these people that have heard about Jesus the healer and they take people in, do you suppose that there was a few there that didn't really understand Jesus and who he was? They're all over, from all over the countryside, right? I, I imagine that there were probably some there who didn't necessarily agree with him on everything he said religiously. I would imagine there were some there who didn't agree with him on everything he said politically. I would imagine there were some there that didn't disagree with everything he said personally. I would imagine there were some there who didn't agree with him on a whole lot of things. But he healed them all. You know what the criteria was for Jesus' help? Somebody had a need. You know what that's called? tenderhearted, called Christ-like. And you know, and the good news for us and the good news for me, and I need it so much, is that Jesus seemed, if it's even possible, he seemed to be even more tenderhearted with his own disciples. As narrow-minded as he was when it came to his doctrine and following the commandments of God without compromise or contradiction, he was to the same extreme extent tender-hearted when it came to his disciples. I'm so glad he is the tender-hearted Messiah. He gave his disciples instructions. And then, they didn't always get it. But Jesus lovingly and patiently then gave them room to learn and to grow. He gave them plentiful forgiveness when they fell and failed. 
and he gave them his amazing grace to get back up and try when they got it miserably wrong. In Matthew chapter 8, we would notice verses 23 through 27. When he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. This is his little group now. Suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. When his disciples came to him and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're perishing. But he said to them, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. I don't see Jesus here. What is wrong with you people? Why, why are you fearful, oh, you of little faith? You can, you can sense the tenderness and, and the patience and the trying to get them to think, lovingly challenging them, yes, but you don't see a stark condemnation. I'm glad you guys all say it because you deserve it because you didn't try. That, that's not who Jesus is. He arose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Listen, as loving and patient as he was, they didn't get it. What did they say? Who can this be? You know what they should have said? This is Jesus, the Son of God. They didn't get it. Who is this guy? They needed lesson number two on the same thing. And Jesus was patient enough and tender enough and kind enough and loving enough to give them another lesson. In this, in this one, they asked, who is this guy? Or, sticking with exactly what it says, who can this be that even the winds and sea obey him? So Jesus just lovingly gives them another lesson in Matthew 14, if you'll turn there. Same situation. Okay, boys, you failed the first time around. Let's try lesson number two. Matthew 14, beginning at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Notice he made them get into the boat. He knew what was coming. They needed another. They needed slowly, gently. He was trying to teach them. They didn't get it the first time, so here we go again. When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. This is between 3 and 6 a.m., as we all know. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost! Cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it's I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. When Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. When he saw the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Notice this. To me, the word that stands out the most in the next text is immediately. And immediately, Jesus didn't say, Peter, look, Peter, serves you right. You need to go down twice, third time. I don't let you drown, but you know what? I tried to teach you this before, and you didn't learn it, so I had to tell you again. Peter, what are you? And immediately, Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand. What a tender-hearted and patient Messiah, even with disciples that don't always get it right, even though they should know better. He reached out immediately, caught his hand and said to him, does this sound familiar to anybody? Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Same punchline, same situation, angry sea. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Yep, that's a page right out of the Matthew 8. But notice this. And those who were with him in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of... This time they got it, uh-huh. This time they didn't say, who is this guy? They said, we know who you are. We know, now we get it. 
They worshipped him and said, truly you are the son of God. See, Jesus was patient with them. Jesus was tender-hearted with them because he knew they had to come to it on their own. And he gave them time. He was patient with them and gave them several learning opportunities. Now listen, when we look at verse 33, it says when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Okay. Listen. Could Jesus have made the wind cease before that? Yes. Could he have made the wind cease so that as he walked out to them, it was flat calm? Yes. Could he have made the wind cease when Peter's down there swallowing water? Yes. Why didn't he? Because he was tender-hearted enough to let the storm accomplish what it needed to, to slowly teach them what they needed to know that he was indeed the Son of God. The first time your child stumbles as they learn to walk, do you pick them up and say, that's it, I'm not teaching you, to, no way, you're, from now you're crawling for the rest of your life. No, we don't do that. We have to lovingly teach them, despite some of the storms, despite some of the falling, and Jesus, like a tender parent, was doing that same thing here, and just, there's so many of these accounts. If we, I don't have time to read it this morning, but you remember in Luke 24, 13 through 30, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus? How loving, and if you don't, read it later on, and, and just watch how tender-hearted the tender-hearted Messiah is and how he treated those two genuine seekers who didn't really fully understand everything, but they wanted to. Oh, I love that. Can I say that again? Look how tender-hearted Jesus was with them, even though they didn't understand everything. They didn't even understand they were talking to Jesus. They didn't get the whole plan. They didn't understand, but boy, they wanted to. And he was so tender with them. And he was so patient with them. Finally, in Luke chapter 23, please turn there. Finally, after all he'd been through himself, the cross and, and, and the crucifixion and, and the, the three days, better part of three days in the tomb and, and all of that, we see his incredible patience and tenderness once again as he so, don't, don't miss this, as he so very gently, one, slow, soft, gentle, step at a time, even after what he had been through, sought to help those who previously had not understood, but wanted to, but who hadn't, to understand. Look at me in Luke 23, beginning in verse 36. I'm sorry, let's try that again. Let's take Luke 24, 36, not 23. 24, 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to, him, said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Not, not what's wrong with you? Don't. Why are you troubled? 
And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. What Jesus, the tender-hearted Messiah, is still gently trying to, to help them slowly, patiently, lovingly to understand who he is. And, and look what he goes on to say. Um, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law and the prophets, a law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Did he challenge them a little? Yeah, he did. Love does that. You know, when, when, when my child is learning to walk, even though they've fallen once, I still encourage them to take the next step, even though it's a challenge. And Jesus was doing that, but, but notice the tenderness. Remember the tenderness. Remember that as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him and knows our frame and remembers that we're dust. Jesus was known for this. I want you to, to notice in John chapter 16, if you'll turn there, I want you to notice this. Uh, as I think about these and prepare for this sermon, you know, some days you don't think you can be any more grateful to be a Christian. And then you can do something like this and you say, man, I'm even more grateful to be a Christian. I'm grateful for who God is. In John chapter 16, beginning at verse 12, Jesus knows their limitations. Jesus knows my limitations. Jesus knows your limitations. Jesus knows what you can handle and what you can't. He knew theirs, and so he worked with it. He worked with it. He said in verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but, but you can't bear them now. He, he, didn't, he didn't call them into judgment because they weren't ready and they, they weren't wired enough so they could understand everything. He said, I, I know you can't. I, I understand that. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll tell you the things to come. And, and, and Jesus goes on from there and says, you know what? I know you can't handle all this right now, but I'm going to send you somebody who can help you. And, and when he comes, then you'll get it, and I know you will. But that's the tender-hearted Messiah. He did the same thing with, with Nicodemus in Nicodemus chapter, uh, yeah, Nicodemus. John chapter 3 and verse 12. Going back for a moment to the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus was trying to reach this poor lost woman and, and when he keeps trying to talk to her in one certain direction and she ain't getting it, she just ain't confused. Well, you know, can I, how can I get this water and, and all of this? And she, she's not comprehending. What is Jesus, you know, it'd been real easy for Jesus, especially with this, this woman in this predicament, in this situation, it would have been really, really, really easy for Jesus to just say, he ain't getting it, lady. Or maybe it'd be easy for some of us, but it wasn't easy for Jesus because the woman had a soul. So what did Jesus do? He completely changed tactics. Go call your husband, he says. Completely, com you know what? If I can't get her from here, I'm going to approach this whole discussion from this angle because her soul is worth it. I'm going to approach it from a different angle. And he did. And when he approached it from a different angle and the conversation unfolded, what happened? You remember what happened? She became absolutely convinced of who he was. And do you know what she did? She didn't go door knocking in one little area. She went and got the whole town. Why? Because Jesus Christ was tender-hearted enough and patient enough to do whatever it took to approach from a different angle if that's what it took. 
to reach her. And if you ever, remember the story in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, where James and John want the, the seats of prominence, and you know, they have mommy come in and talk to Jesus about it, and they want the places at his right and left. He said it wasn't his to give. Have you ever noticed that no matter which account you read of that particular incident, you never see Jesus really, really severely rebuke those two? Have you ever noticed that? You don't see him unleash on those two. What does he do instead? He uses it as an opportunity to teach the whole group. That's what he does. That's tenderhearted. That is tenderhearted when you can take a Kodak moment when somebody has really messed up, somebody's really pushed the envelope, and say, that's not the way my kingdom works. It's not the way it is in church. We don't do things that way. And you, and you teach the whole group a very positive lesson out of that instead of absolutely waylaying those two. He, he never did that. You see, Jesus Christ, the narrow-minded and tender-hearted Messiah, understood that while God's truth was never to be compromised at any cost, he also understood that everyone who was really seeking to learn and embrace it was priceless. And that everybody that was seeking to learn and embrace that uncompromisable truth, that narrow-minded truth, was learning at a different pace and understood things at a little bit different comprehension and level of understanding. And therefore, because he did not want to, to break a, a bruised reed or, or snuff out a, a smoldering flax, because he didn't want to lose any of them, no matter, no matter where they were along the, the, the spectrum of learning and growth, because he didn't want to lose any of them. He gave them all, and he gives you and me the time and the patience and the mercy and the grace and the tenderness to finally find and learn how to live that narrow-minded truth even when we mess it all up at times. But Jesus went that way with everybody. To those who were willfully disobedient and they didn't want to know and they wanted to fight him in his word at every turn, there was a whole different Jesus, Matthew chapter 15 and Matthew chapter 23. But with those who wanted it, Jesus was the perfect balance. This is kind of the kicker and the punchline of the lesson. Jesus was the perfect balance, the perfect combination, and the perfect culmination of being both completely narrow-minded and completely tender-hearted at the same time. And by the way, that's not surprising. Later on, you can check out Romans 11, 22. talks about, behold, the goodness and severity of God. God is so good to those who love him, but God has a severe side. God is the perfect balance. Well, Jesus being God in the flesh was the perfect balance between narrow-minded and tender-hearted. And, and you know, so were his first-century disciples. So were his first-century apostles. If you read just 2 Peter chapter 3, for instance, we're not going to read it this morning, but... But if you read just 2 Peter, chapter 3, just read the entire chapter, and you'll find out that the Apostle Peter had no tolerance whatsoever for teachings, the teachings of those who would twist the scriptures to their own destruction. He had no tolerance for that. But at the same time, he had perpetual patience for those who were truly penitent and would turn to and embrace the truth. 
That's 2 Peter 3. Peter had it, he, he finally got it in that chapter between being perfectly narrow-minded and perfectly tender-hearted at the same time. You know, that's the balance that's so hard for us. So hard. Being perfectly narrow-minded and tender-hearted at the same time can be a difficult balancing situation for us as humans to both attain in the first place and then maintain from then on, but we have to do it. You know why? Well, first off, because that's following in the footsteps of Jesus, which we have to do to get to heaven and want to do because we love him. But also, being totally narrow-minded on doctrine and totally tender-hearted when it comes to people that are trying to get it right but haven't got it right yet. Another reason it's so important that we do that is because that's what guarantees the future of the Lord's church. That is absolutely essential to the continued existence of the narrow-minded, tender-hearted Messiah's church. If we become only narrow-minded, if we become only narrow-minded, only so locked into doctrine that people don't matter, that mistakes don't matter, we are so locked into cold, hard, absolute, narrow-minded truth, and that is it. We're going to become like the Church of Christ, the first century Ephesus, who lost its first love. They pretty much stopped reaching out to people, from what I understand from commentators, where it's not specified. And we can't do that. We need to reach out to lost people, realizing they're lost, they're broken. We need to have that mercy. But on the other hand, if we become totally merciful to the point that truth doesn't matter and narrow-mindedness doesn't matter, then we're going to become more like the church of Christ in Pergamum, Revelation 2, 12 through 14, who would compromise the truth to the destruction of their own soul. See, you can't have either extreme. We've got to have both. That's what Jesus had. He was, he was narrow-minded to the extreme. He was tender-hearted to the extreme. Our souls, as well as the souls of others, depend on us achieving that balance because we absolutely have to have it in today's politically correct, everything's okay, no standard of right and wrong world. Listen, don't you ever compromise what the Bible says. But at the same time, you, you stay narrow-minded, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that every brother or sister who doesn't understand something exactly the way we do or some brother and sister who may have a different perspective on a non-biblical issue, or some brother or sister who might possibly be at a different level of Christian understanding than we are, or some brother or sister who can't quite handle the whole biblical truth on a given subject right this moment, that doesn't mean, because we are narrow-minded, that we look at them as if they're automatically some wolf in sheep's clothing, some, some hard-hearted, self-serving, God-denying person. Don't, because then we've lost our tender-heartedness. We need both. We need to learn and discern the difference and maintain the balance between the two. Being constantly made over into his image, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, through our increasing knowledge, Romans 12, 1 and 2, so that as he is, so are we in this world, 1 John 4, 17. Do you know, we may not have ever thought of it in this way, a very familiar text, we may not have thought of it in this way. <clears throat> do you know, in Acts chapter 2, which we're all extremely familiar with, do you know that in Acts chapter 2, Peter followed in the footsteps of 
both the narrow-minded as well as the tender-hearted Messiah. Peter was very narrow-minded in Acts 2. <clears throat> no compromise. You put him to death, he said. You, with the help of godless men, put him to death. Peter, that's the way it was. Peter was taking no prisoners. He was narrow. They, they were the problem. And he told them so, face to face. Peter was taking no prisoners. But you know what he told those same people he was so narrow-minded about? You, you know what he told them? Later on, when they asked what to do, he said, you need to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Wait a minute. The people who put him to death can have their sins forgiven? Peter says, yeah. Well, that's the mercy. Even those who put him to death? Yes, that's the mercy. And then Peter goes right back to being narrow-minded because he tells them, he said, it's for you, but this is what you've got to do. It's not some prayer. It's not some, this is it. One way in heaven, right? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you, to your children, to all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He said this one way, but, but the tenderhearted, he said, yeah, even you who put him to death. What about you this morning? I'm going to be as narrow-minded as I come. Here you go. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. If we do not obey his commandments, we're not going to heaven. One of the commandments, he told Peter, he said, you'll open up the, the church, you'll open up the kingdom. And Peter did in Acts 2 when he said those very things. Folks, there's one way into heaven. You've got to understand, believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. You've got to be willing to confess your sins, you've got, or to confess him, I'm sorry, to confess him as Lord, and you've got to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and then you need to live faithful, and that's the only way to heaven. That's it. One way. One. Just one. Period. Boom. End of discussion. But that promise is for you and your children. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you think your sin is. Jesus Christ has the grace and the mercy and the tender heart that says, I will give you that living water if you want it. Don't we have an awesome God? The tender-hearted Jesus, who wouldn't break a snapped piece of grass, doesn't want to see you broken either. And he wants to heal you right now. If you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, or you need the prayers of this church, if you need the tender-hearted Messiah in any way, or if you need to be a little more strong in the word, a little more narrow-minded, wherever you're a little bit out of that balance, we stand ready to help you any way we can as we stand and sing. Please let us know.